Hey there. We wanted to have a quick word before we get started. We started this podcast on a bit of a whim, looking for ways to share information during the first few months of the pandemic that wasn't written because so many clinicians were reading everything they could get their hands on about COVID and they didn't want to read anything more. It's been a great way for us to share really interesting conversations we're having, but we've got to come clean. We need your help. We have bootstrapped the last five seasons, but we need more support. We'd really rather not turn to advertising, which inevitably breaks up the conversation for listeners. So we're going to try first to ask for you, our listeners, for donations. If you find what we do helpful, you can donate at our website, and we'd love to give you a shout out. You, or some of your friends, or your organization, can sponsor an episode. Or you can make a contribution in honor of someone dear to you. If you're in a position to do it, we would really appreciate your support. And now to the podcast. Hi, I'm Wendy Dean. And I'm Simon Talbot. And this is Moral Matters. Dr. Richard Edley is the lead executive for Rehabilitation and Community Providers Association, one of the largest such state agencies in the country. He trained as a psychologist at McLean in Boston, but he has worked on the administrative side of mental health care for years. Let's have a listen. So Richard Edley, I am so glad you agreed to join us on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. It's great being here. And I, I think I think maybe we might want to share how we met, which is really unusual and something I never do. We happened to be coming back to tiny Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we were sitting next to each other on a plane and ended up talking for half the flight. And as we said, we, we never do that. In, in a prior career, I flew virtually every day, so thousands of flights over 10 years, never spoke to anyone. <laughs> so it is kind of unique that the two of us struck up a conversation. Right. <laughs> right? And, and we, we figured out that we were both in mental health care. We both had had these struggles with finding ways to do it in a way that felt sustainable and that felt like it was good for patients. Um, and we decided that we needed to extend that conversation. So... I'm really grateful that you agreed to come on and share it with our listeners. Great. Thank you. One of the things that I found so fascinating about what you do is that you are a psychologist by training who ended up as a lobbyist. Yes. And I, and I think that that is not a career path most people training in psychology would ever expect they would take. Yeah, or any career path. You, you don't grow up thinking, someday I hope to be a lobbyist, you know, when you're in <laughs> high school or something. Um, and it's probably like a lot of careers. You, you sort of fall into it somehow. And um, really, my career took me early on after practicing and getting my PhD and so forth into managed care in the early, in the early days of managed care and, began, and ended up running a provider-based managed care organization for many, many years in Pennsylvania. And about 10 years ago, um, I was approached by a, two associations in Pennsylvania that were merging. The two execs running that association were retiring and they were going to come together and create this sort of mega association. And again, this is not something that I ever dreamed that someday I'd run an association. Um, that was always on the periphery of my experience. But I thought this would be an interesting career change to be on the side of fighting for funding and, and lobbying, which I'll get into a little more, for what I felt was the right cause to really help people and the individuals and agencies who were helping those 
most in need. So the merger came about, and this summer is the 10th anniversary, to create an, an association of over 360 agencies, health systems, um, other stakeholders and organizations in nine divisions of healthcare, but including the one that we were talking about a, a lot, behavioral health, mental health, and substance use, but as well as intellectual and developmental disabilities and autism, brain injury, and so forth, uh, children's services. And um, as it stands today, it's really, arguably the largest of its type in the country. A lot of associations are very niche, very small. You know, you represent the 15 of the blank. You don't usually see 360. Um, so th that's how it came about. And when we did the merger, uh, what well, I had to learn the association business. And what do associations do? Uh, education and training and information and analysis. And, and that's all great. And, and we still do that. And we every day we're churning out emails and um, listservs and all this kind of stuff. But it, it occurred to me, with our size, we represent probably hundreds of thousands of staff at those agencies and health systems serving millions of Pennsylvanians. Shouldn't we be a force? Shouldn't we be at the legislature, at the administration, saying, well, no, this, this, this doesn't work. We need different uh, rules. We need different policies. We need more funding. And so that's really how it evolved from a more traditional association to a real lobbying association. So it's, you're taking care of all of the vulnerable folks in healthcare right now, not, you know, in certain sectors of healthcare, not all of it, and in other business sectors as well, not just the patients, but the people who take care of them so that they can focus on their jobs. That's right. And, and I should clarify that the, the types of providers and organizations that I represent are what they call the safety net providers, the public sector providers. So it's not that they don't do commercial work and commercial insurance, but their missions, whether they're not-for-profit or for-profit, is really to serve those most in need, the most complex disabilities, uh, those uh, Medicaid, uninsured, that kind of population. So again, when I talk about I feel like now I'm, on, I'm really the good side of the equation. I, we don't win every day, and we're not always going to the legislature and just getting magical wins, but I feel like I'm fighting for those most in need who don't have a voice and for the providers who, who serve them. And, and, th and that's a, a good feeling when, when there are victories and wins. You know, it's funny because when I hear you say that, um, when I think of a lobbyist, I don't think of the good guy. I don't think of the person who's representing those who are vulnerable. So thank you for clarifying in my mind that there are lobbyists who do all sorts of different things. It's obvious when you think about it. Uh, so thanks for clarifying that. Can I ask you, how did you learn how to do this? Yeah, a lot of the stuff, psychology graduate school doesn't tr teach you any of this. It doesn't train you for this. Even going back to my managed care, people assume I had a finance or business background because you're dealing so much with numbers and 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 rates and things. And um, it, it really, um, uh, you know, I jumped in and figured I'm going to have to learn this. And so I just talked to a lot of people. I never did any formal training. So I never like went back and got an MBA or anything like that. In fact, going back to my first job in my career, when I first ran my first managed care plan, I'll never forget the, the president of the whole organization said, all right, so we're going to give you this, this you're going to run the whole thing. Do you know anything about budgets? I said, I've, <laughs> said, no, I have no idea about budgets. He goes, all right, well, then we're going to create one for you. <laughs> and he said, if you beat the budget, 
we'll reward you. And if you don't beat the budget, you're fired. Do you want the job? And that was sort of my, <laughs> uh, my entry into managed care. I did that for many years. Similarly, I, I really didn't know, so how do you be a lobbyist? What do you do? So what I did was I hired an internal government relations resource who was a lobbyist, an external firm. And I remember how uh, nervous I was and how naive I was in my first meetings with legislators. And they but they would open the door for me and say, well, Richard, you talk to them about what the issues are. And I'd stumble my way through it. But eventually I figured out, all right, I got it. I understand what I'm supposed to be doing. Or sometimes you might have a half hour meeting, sometimes even longer, an hour meeting. Sometimes you got five minutes. Well, what are you gonna do in five minutes with this person at a fundraiser that they'll remember, okay, I got it. You need funding for uh, uh, intellectual disabilities group homes. Got it. You know, and they got the takeaway message. So it really was a lot of trial and error, a lot of just jumping in and doing it, but also surrounding myself with some good experts who knew how to do it and knew how to open doors and shake hands and, and do all those things. To this day, though, it's, it, it's, a, it's still a learning process. We're right now having a governor transition here in Pennsylvania to, um, actually yesterday was the inauguration of Governor Shapiro, so I've been going to all sorts of events and uh, inauguration ceremonies and everything, and it's all filled with lobbyists and politicians, whatever, and you gotta work the room, shake hands, tell people what you're about in really small snippets such that they remember, and it's, it is a learning process. Do you find that in healthcare and in, in going to a room of folks in a, you know, with, a, with a governor, is what you say easy or hard to get through to people? I think, uh, well, I think it's harder than people imagine. Um, and I explain this to the providers I represent and actually to my staff here. I, I'd mentioned we have nine divisions. For every division, we have someone who's in charge who's really the expert in that division. That to us, it's so self-evident that you have people in need, you have vulnerable populations, they need funding, they need services. Well, there's a lot of people out there, you know, not that they don't care, but well, they're also, they're worried about bridges and roads and gambling and hunting and you know, whatever their issues might be, that maybe healthcare isn't number one on their list. So it, it is a constant education process and a lot of repetition. So when we're meeting with a politician, you might be thinking, isn't this the 10th time you've explained this? Right, and there's probably going to be a 12th and a 15th, and you've got to keep, keep it up. Uh, it, so it's, I don't think, I, I, my impression of politicians truly is that they do care. And I know that's sort of like your lobbying comment earlier, really. Yeah. You'd yeah. have a different, yeah. I don't think many politicians go into just to, you know, because it's a job. They, they really want to make a difference. But this isn't necessarily the number one issue. The other thing is when you're talking about a lot of vulnerable populations, except when you talk about maybe their families, not always the ones voting. And so um, from a lobbying perspective, explaining why this is right, why this is the, the ethical and moral thing to do, um, how it, and then even hitting them from the other side, why when investing in this services for this population also saves the Commonwealth money in the long run, because often mm -hmm. there's a lot of cost offsets when you talk about, the, 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 you know, not to get too far from things, but when you talk about unnecessary hospitalizations, the mental health work that's done in the prison system, the, the cost throughout the system, if you can provide good healthcare upfront, you really can't save. So even those who maybe aren't as up on the healthcare part of it, they certainly understand the budget impact if you do it right. Yeah, so can you, can you just sort of simplify what your day is like or what, what do you do as a lobbyist in support of either mental health care funding or workforce well-being or any of that? Well, let me start with the, the, the end part. Every year we create sort of a list of what are our priorities. What not, every day it changes, but at least we try to set out and say 
This year, this is what we're attacking. And number one on the list is workforce. I mean, you have to. Um, it's 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 a crippling situation in every division we have. And the other thing we have to educate people about is the word workforce is a global, vague one. So I've had people, even in the new administration, say, so what is the workforce problem? And I'll have to say, do you mean the direct support professional who's working in a group home? Do you mean a nurse at a hospital? Do you mean a psychiatrist? Do you mean the master's level clinicians? And all workforce issues, and they're all struggling, but very different reasons and def very different solutions. People like to think workforce, how do we solve it? And it's not that simple. Um, and so in a typical day for me, there's sort of a, a reactive part and a proactive part. Um, the reactive part is it feels like every day some a part of the government is releasing a new policy or some legislators proposing new legislation that we're looking at and saying, wow, we understand what they intended, but the unintended effect of this is going to be massive. We need to intervene quickly and shift this. So now we're being reactive, but at least we have a shot. We, we heard about it. The more proactive part is when we're talking to providers and talking to the constituents and saying, we have an opportunity, say, Next week, we're going to be meeting with the, the X committee in the House. What should we be proposing? Maybe we can get them to take up something. So we're trying to push the needle as well, not just always be reactive. What I'm really proud of, I mentioned that the organization's 10 years old, is that we, one of the things I kept saying to both the administration and the legislature, and those, are the, as those two, along with the governor's office, are sort of our three areas of focus with lobbying. I keep going to them for the last 10 years saying, you're thinking of doing something and you have the best of intentions. Why don't you shoot it by me and I'll talk to a few providers and then say, perfect idea, but you might want to change that third paragraph because I don't think that's what you meant. And then unleash it. Why do, do you always have to unleash it and then we have to fight it? And we're, we really have seen that change in the last decade where we do get the phone call, we do get the email, we're invited into the meeting before something happens. Um, and there's, uh, so in terms of answering your question, it's both the reactive and proactive. Probably the third part is answering questions for providers uh, of service. And when I say providers, just again to clarify, I'm talking about, you know, large community agencies, not like the social worker who has a shingle up and sees private patients. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a community agency that might be in five counties serving an entire population for autism or something like that. Those are the members that I, I serve. There's always questions. There's always interpretations of concerns about audits, licensure. There's, there's a lot of regulatory oversight in, in the public sector system. In fact, when I talk about workforce, if, if you really want to know what will solve it short term, obviously funding. You, you want to get, you know, if someone had a magic millions of dollars and gave it to us and we spread it among the agencies, that helps with recruitment and retention. If you can't get that, if you can reduce administrative burden, the regulatory oversight and the daily thousands of administrative things that staff have to do, that at least allows them to free up time and to see their clients and consumers and families you know, uh, in, in a lot more meaningful way and not have to sh shift all their time. And one of the things I'm always saying to the state is you shouldn't be requiring agencies more than what the community standard is. So for example, um, if, like I mentioned a social worker, if you're a social worker, you uh, see a patient and you develop a treatment plan, you see them. Now you have to document, you have to submit your bill. I mean, there's rules, 
but you don't have to call a psychiatrist and get them to sign off on your treatment plan, but you do if you're running a community agency. It's above community standard, and that time the psychiatrist is doing that is time taken away they could have seen a patient, and there's such a shortage of psychiatry. And that's just one of a thousand examples like that. That's great. I was literally just talking to a clinician before we got on this call saying, why can't I get my patients in to see a psychiatrist, especially in areas where there's such need and low income? Mm -hmm. They can't find a psychiatrist. And so this idea of freeing them from some of the administrative burden would be amazing. Yeah. We, you know, one of the things we were talking about, Wendy, on that airplane was people leaving the field. And, and yes, yeah, some do leave the field because they can get more money elsewhere. It's no question. It's a tough system for reimbursement in the public sector. But the other thing is when you add on administrative burden, they start to think, you know what, it, it's, it'll be easier across the street, across town in that private practice. I don't, I don't need this. Or I'll leave the field. I can make more money. And that's where I mentioned there's multiple things hitting the workforce. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, one of the things I, I heard from a provider up in all the way up in the uh, Northeast PA who said, who runs a mental health clinic said, great today, I just lost three more master's level clinicians to Dunkin' Donuts, Lowe's and Walmart master's level clinicians. They'd had enough and they, even if it's a pay cut, it's easier. I could clock in and go home. I don't need the burden. That's one area of workforce. The other one, and that's burden, not so much the money. On the money side, um, in Hershey, there's a community group home for intellectual and developmental disabilities, right in the community. They can squeeze out maybe $15, $16 an hour. About a mile down the road in Palmyra, Pennsylvania, there's a warehouse paying $21 an hour with a signing bonus. Now, unless you are really into the mission of this, that's a tough one. You're going to take 16 versus 21 and work with a very different population, difficult population. You're going to have to be doing overtime. You're going to, versus I could just go to the warehouse and they, they pay me more and a bonus. So there's a lot of factors. In, in the old days, we used to say, old days as in like four years ago, <laughs> that um, the issue was how do we get the agencies to pay above minimum wage? That's long gone. Minimum wage is, it's how do we get the agencies to compete with the private sector is the real issue now. So the game's changed through COVID. Yeah, that's hard. That's really hard. So when you're out doing this work, you said you had to learn how to talk to legislators and you had to, you had to learn how to shape the arguments you were making. And so I wonder if you can give our listeners a bit of a window into how you shape those arguments and what you need from this side to support them. Um, there's usually two things. One is data. And the other are the stories and the anecdotes. Like I just gave you two stories. They are very powerful. People want to know really what's happening and that kind of thing. But if all you have is stories, someone's invariably going to say, yeah, but what's the average wage across this, the state that people are paying for entry? And if you go, well, it's about, I guess, you know, that's not a good answer. Or if they say, well, you're saying there's a large turnover in this system. What is that percentage? And if you, you know, um, so we're often going out to the membership and asking them to fill out surveys. And it's a problem. I just mentioned all the administrative burden, and then they get another survey from us. That's going to take their CFO or their HR or their supervisors, but it is really important. And I'll give you an example. Just in the last month, along with a couple of other associations, we um, hired an independent group to do yet another survey on our intellectual and developmental disability system. 
and did a polling, you know, dozens and dozens of agencies of all sizes, rural, city, everything across the state, ended up with, uh, I think, responses representing over 9,000 employees across the field. And that's where they found out, in fact, I have the data right here, um, the average direct support professional, the person who is working in a group home or doing in-home work, that kind of is getting paid sixteen <sighs> sixty-one an hour. And now that is significantly higher than it was five years ago, but it's not what you know, fast food pays in a lot of places. The vacancy factor, that means at any given point, how many, what's the percent of your positions that aren't filled? Oh it's 28% across these providers. So almost a third of the positions, you can imagine the overtime they're paying. Then for every person you hire, how many people are leaving? The turnover rate was an average of 38%. So as quickly as you can hire and you have all these vacancy positions, more are leaving. It's a real dire situation. Um, so having data that's fresh like that is important. And interestingly, people haven't really challenged. I mean, was that a true independent statistical sampled study? No, but I think people get it. You know, when you get 9,000 staff across all the Commonwealth, it's good enough data to, to make the point. Add that to the stories. So I think those are the two things that we ask most from our, our members tell us what's going on and give us examples. And then please, when we come out with another thing, it's for a reason. It wasn't just that, that we thought it'd be fun to have some more data, that it's, it's really because we're going back in again. So we've done studies on that. We've done studies on telehealth, on different reimbursement methodologies, all of which lead back to workforce. So even sometimes when you think, well, well, you're talking about telehealth, what, how does that impact workforce? Well, during COVID, among the, the few things we learned, one is that telehealth works. And if you can successfully use telehealth, decrease no-shows that would have happened at a clinic, more efficiently use psychiatric time and others, uh, other professionals, well, that does impact the workforce. But immediately, what does the government do in the managed care companies? All right, let's make some rules on telehealth. Let's get our arms around it. Now I'm thinking, why are you getting your <laughs> arms around it? You know, so you have to do this. You're going to have to document this. You're going to have to only, you're going to now have to see them in person once every, you know, and now it becomes another administrative nightmare versus, boy, this was an opening up freeing way to provide service. And um, so a lot of these things might seem like it's important, but it's not just important in and of itself. It, it all goes back to workforce, all of these things. So if you were... If you were able to talk to the individual clinicians who are out there, the direct service professionals, whether they be psychiatrists or, or folks working in group homes or everybody in between, what would you want them to know or resources that you would want them to go to to help support these arguments that are being made on their behalf? And, and just to understand what the process is that's working behind the scenes to make their jobs easier. Um, it's an interesting question because a lot of what we do, especially in this um, uh, virtual era, is behind the scenes. And so I'm often worried that we're out there fighting and doing this stuff and even making gains. It's like the tree in the forest. Who knows? Until something's unleashed to the public and there's a new policy or there's a new something, who would know that we just had that meeting and are getting this close to changing that thing that people are really upset about? And it might happen within a month. So um, 
One of the things that we've encouraged is, and I realize I run an association, so to me all roads lead to associations, and I get that, but we encourage people to really be involved. We have lots of different virtual meetings. We have lots of, uh, I mentioned those email blasts, um, daily updates, on a weekly basis, we update very clearly in bullet points what is it that we're trying to accomplish, what are we doing, so that the, the agencies and the individual clinicians out there actually can see, okay, I'm being buried by these things, but at least there's someone out there who's trying to fight it. It looks like there was a series of meetings with the Department of Human Services, and there's going to be a legislative hearing about it. Good. There's, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, that there really is someone out there, or a group of people, I don't want to take credit, a group, group of us who are trying to make an impact here. Because I, I could imagine, um, you know, we, we, we talked a lot, Wendy, when, when we met, about what happens to staff when they feel so overburdened and they're not making any headway? Well, and, and we also talked about the fact that we hate the word burnout because burnout sounds like you're blaming them. Like if, if you just had more strength and didn't burn out, you would have survived. And that's not the case. Who wouldn't want to leave the field? So that it might offer some hope. There, we also do um, a lot of webcasts, all member webcasts, where we can get hundreds of people. We've even got 300 plus on where we present some of these things and also answer questions. People say, are you doing anything about blank? And either we could update them or say, it's a great point. We hadn't thought about that. Maybe we could put that on our list. So we want people to be involved. And it's a little harder when you're dealing with 360 agencies, you know, what, 300,000 staff. I mean, how do we get, we're not going to meet with all of them, but at least if we continue to have the communication out and are, are listening back, I, I think that there's, there's some hope. That's great. So how do people find out if the agency they work for is part of an association like yours? Our association, at least, is very transparent. You, you know, on our website is a list of all the agencies. So if you weren't even sure, you could check it out. I mean, if you didn't want to call us. I mean, everything's on the web. We're on Facebook and all the social media and all those kinds of things that I don't know a whole lot about. But we're on there. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly by doing that, then they could find out, oh, so you mean I actually, because I'm part of this agency and the agency is part of RCPA, can actually sign up. I can go to some of these webcasts and everything we do now, because the, the age we're in is, is simulcast. You know, it's not like, great, I'm in Erie, but I'm gonna have to drive to Harrisburg for the meeting next week. Of, of course not. Um, a lot of our stuff is taped. You could even look at it later uh, if you, you know, depending on your schedule. Um, lots of written material out there, all of our government affairs material, our lobbying. Um, so, there, there are e easy ways to find out if you're part of something like this. The other thing we do, which um, we, we are always pushing, is we have a very active PAC. And this goes, um, Simon, back to your earlier comment about, you know, I thought PACs are pretty bad, aren't they? <laughs> well, they could be. But um, the, uh, um, the, the way we use our PAC, Political Action Committee, is we get private donations into it and allows us to go to fundraisers. It allows us to support politicians um, who are, are, are in office or are running. And again, before I did this, I used to think like everyone else, when you read the newspaper or CTV, so I give money to a politician and now they support our cause. It really doesn't work that way, or at least not in my field. 
The way it works is if there's a politician out there who really gets it and is proposing legislation that really would help us and they're one of our champions and they're running for office against someone who really doesn't share those values, well, wouldn't we want to support that person to stay in office? So it's really more finding the champions, working with them, having them present to our membership, meeting with them and then supporting them. But the only way we could do that is have an active PAC, which needs private donations. You know, corporations can't, can't do that. So another way for people to be involved Involved. Um, and then we have different PAC events and things like that. And then individuals can also meet the politicians. It's not just that we're doing it, but we, we could have events where others can, can meet the, the people who are really supporting their causes. So I think what the bottom line is that you're saying is that don't assume that a politician, a lobbyist, or a political action committee is necessarily a bad thing. Correct. Understand what's behind that and what they're, what they're fighting for. Yep. Although, um, when I mentioned I ran a managed care organization, that was provider-owned, and the entire mission was to get dollars out to care, so it wasn't your typical insurer. But I did have someone say to me once that, so your entire career, you've been a managed care executive and now a lobbyist, two of the most hated professions in the, you know, in the country. Oh, you know, I guess that's one way to look at it. But I'd like to think I turned the equation around on those. Well, I was going to say, I bet people listening to this are sitting there saying, who's my lobbyist? I'm already thinking about the various organizations I'm a member of. And I know there are some lobbyists working for them. I've never reached out and I've never actually looked at what they're doing. And I'm sure there are other people feeling the same way I am. So thank you for turning my, uh, my opinion on its head. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so critical for health, the healthcare workforce as a whole, no matter who they are, to understand what happens behind the scenes and who's fighting on their behalf in that scrum. Right. Um, and... and it, and it's a slow process. You're dealing with government. So I'm, my job is I'm in a lot of meetings. Every single department within Department of Human Services, I meet with every month with my, my staff. I'm constantly meeting and talking to legislators. We're having offshoot meetings, whatever. It's, not, it's, it's rare that you meet, you talk, and that day it's solved. In fact, um, I had one U.S. Uh, congressman staff say, we really need the data on this because this is fast-tracked. And then he said, well, let me back up. When I say fast track, I mean over the next few years. Because <laughs> fast track to me, I think this week. You know? Yeah. Um, right. I mean, here's right. another thing. Everybody's listening to you saying, thank God somebody else is going to these meetings because I couldn't stomach it. So, you know, like I'm sure there's a, the, the, there, there has to be a tremendous amount of appreciation for you actually doing this work and taking this voice out there because many of us um, enjoy taking care of patients because we don't enjoy being in meetings. Yes. And, uh, and, and I also think it's important, again, going back to the communication with the membership and those who were providing the services, that as difficult of a process it is that we have a few wins. And that was something also I said when I took over 10 years ago. We can't say we're doing the job, we're fighting the fight, but we have to show something. Like, and here's examples. Here's legislation that actually went out that didn't exist last year. Here's actually a change in the way telehealth is going to be provided that didn't happen three years ago. You know, so really some concrete things that people could see. Or the, the, the big thing, increased funding. That there's actually the legislature is going to put more money into, whether it's mental health or substance use or intellectual disabilities, brain injury, whatever. We have to show people that we're making some, some headway. Yeah. That's great. Well, Richard, I, I really appreciate you being here with us and sharing all of this. And I hope that we continue to find ways to work together because I think what you're doing is really powerful. Well, thank you. And it's been a pleasure. It was great to, to meet you and meet all of you and, um, and, and take part today.
And, and I learned one other lesson here, which is when you're on a flight, you should talk to the person next to you <laughs> because you just never know what you're going to find. That's right. I, I've got to exactly. open my mind. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. So, Wendy, I can see why Richard is in the job he's in. He is incredibly clear and incredibly logical. And the thing that I took away from a lot of what he was saying is the ability that his current job has to leverage one person's work to help us a huge amount of, uh, of others. Exactly. He is, he is so clear and he has such a command of such a wide variety of information. But he's also so earnest about it. You know, when we talked for an hour, there was never a moment that I didn't feel like he was fighting for the people mm-hmm. that he represented. And it, and it's, but it's not fighting in a, in a, con, like a combative way. Mm-hmm. He really wants those people to do better and for the clients that they serve to be better. Well, uh, the way that he puts it is interesting um, when he says we're both proactive and reactive, right? The reactive stuff is the fighting, but the proactive stuff is the figuring out new ways to do things, proposing new ideas, taking opinions from people who are on the front lines and bringing them to those making legislation. And so I, I think that's a really interesting way to look at it because we so often think about the need to be reactive and the feeling that being reactive makes us angry and frustrated. But uh, he sees a, a much broader role, which I really, really like. And what I think speaks so highly of the work he's done and how clearly he speaks to the efforts he's making is that he's moved a lot of their effort from reactive to proactive mm-hmm. by saying, I can save you heartache. Yep. Let me help you shape this Yeah. in a way that won't have so many unseen consequences. You know, really just listening to him is a, a large microcosm, if you like, of, uh, of so many different areas. I mean, when he talked about the two big fixes being funding and reducing administrative burden, I mean, I think that that is the world over. But at the same time, that command of the concept of reducing administrative burden, the idea that there are many good ideas that are being ruined on the way to being implemented is a really common theme that we hear from so many different people. Right. And we often think about reducing administrative burden as doing it within our organization, just in the, in the place that we are. And he's thinking about it on the legislative level. level. He's thinking about it on the Pennsylvania state level. And I'm sure that some of that can roll over into a more national level. Absolutely. Well, my takeaway is that you're not lobbyists are useful and uh, knowing who they are may be a very important uh, step forward in actually making change that's bigger than your clinic. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. We are a grassroots organization and your contributions will help keep these episodes coming. If any of the work we do is helpful to you, please give back if you can by making a donation at our website, fixmoralinjury.org. While you're there, go to the podcast page for all the resources we've mentioned in today's and other episodes and browse through the pages and pages of other resources we've catalogued. The book list alone could keep you busy for months. You can also help by spreading the word and encouraging conversations. Share this episode with friends and colleagues, or use the social media links in the show notes and tag us. We'd love to see your thoughts. 
Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. As always, thanks for listening. And stay well.